Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. It's so nice to be with you all again, and it's such a wonderful, wonderful time of year. And um, uh, as, as um, Rod said before the class, um, this class is dedicated to the memory of uh, Ari Fold, who was unfortunately a martyr who was was killed on the sanctification of the name, um, I believe, earlier today or this morning. Um, interestingly enough, um, there there is a connection between this event and uh, what I'm going to be talking about today. What I'm going to be talking about today is um, loosely connected to to Helim, uh, but like in my other uh, few, the last few classes. I've, I've started with um, something from the Seven Laws, something from the Noahid Commandments to get us going. And um, one of the uh, general um, um, conceptual and uh, general rules uh, in behind, kind of foundational to Noahid Law is the uh, laws and the concept of repentance. Um, wherever, there, wherever there is an obligation to God, there's, there's also the ability to correct and to return and, and, and to, to start over. So um, we're going to be talking about that today for obvious reasons, because it's apropos to the time of year. We are now in the midst of the uh, days of awe, We've just come out of uh, Rosh Hashanah. We've come out of, of of the first day of the Jewish New Year. Really, the creation. It's interesting because um, uh, out there in, in um, general understanding of people, um, Rosh Hashanah is the day that God created the world. But actually, the Midrash tells us it's a day that God created man, not the world. And the world was created five days earlier. Um, during Elul, but it was man that was created uh, in Rosh, on Rosh Hashanah, and it's man that has the ability to return and and repent. Um, the animals seemingly don't have uh, have that ability. So uh, let's just begin there. There is just in the same way that um, there's a law of tshuva of re repenting repentance. Uh, for the Jewish people, it also applies to, to non-Jews as well. Now, the um, repentance is broken down into its three parts, which is remorse, confession, and changing for the future. So which is the main section? Which is the most important part of tshuva, actually, out of the three? I like to argue remorse is actually the most central and vital um, characteristic of tshuva than the others. Now, the reason for that is because tshuva, through tshuva, well, what do we have to come to? We have to come to never doing this something again. And as Maimonides tells us, we're coming, the... Um, Ideal tshuva, ideal repentance, is when God himself can testify and say, 
this person will never do this again. That's the general language of Maimonides. Maimonides also says that who is a true repentant? Someone who comes into the exact same situation and falls into the exact same pitfall, but doesn't sin. I may have mentioned this before uh, in a previous lecture, but I find it fascinating because um, Maimonides seems to be telling us something that's a bit odd. He's telling us that um, this uh, person who previously fouls, previously um, succumbed to some type of a transgression, now finds himself in the same situation. It's a bit odd because in Judaism there's a very important rule, and it's really something very important to contemplate, and that is that we put fences around transgressions. We don't, we don't tempt fate again. We don't go back into the same situations again. It's, it's interesting because I think it's a very, very apropos and um, um, very relevant concept based on what's been going on in the news. There's a lot in the news about sexual abuse and things like that. And um, I think one thing we can learn from all that is the importance of creating boundaries, the importance, especially when it comes to uh, sexual weakness, but even in other areas, wherever we need to be aware of human weakness, as opposed to being in denial of human weakness. We need to understand our human weaknesses and, and, and create, you know, separations and, and, and stay far away from those type of things that could bring us there. So it's strange that Maimonides is telling us that this person ends up in the same situation. In a certain sense, I would argue, well, that doesn't seem like a full repentance because he ended up back in the same situation he wasn't supposed to be in. So something doesn't seem quite right. But evidently, we're talking about a situation where he did everything he could, and yet he still ended up in the same situation. Or, or we're talking about existentially, that, again, it's connected to the previous statement I said before, that God can testify that he could go back to that state, that he could go back to that same situation and not succumb. It's not that he actually is going to test himself and go there and see what happens, that I don't think that that would not be a true repentant. But, but what we're talking about is that the person has existentially really changed. He's a different person. <clears throat> now, to become that different person, you, a person really has to, it takes tremendous work. It takes tremendous work. And that old person has to disappear. How do we get rid of that old person that once was there and become someone new? That's through remorse. Primarily through remorse. Primarily from kind of a, a deep meditation, a deep sense of disgust, a deep sense of embarrassment because what embarrassment actually is is a feeling of that is just so not who I am it's it's a feeling of that act that just happened I'm so embarrassed of it because it is so distant from my vision of myself as a human being it's so below who I envision myself to be as a person who I sense myself to be as a person. 
And that's really what remorse has so much and so much to do with that. It also has so much to do with the fact that the person coming to the realization of actually how far he was, how far he had become from God. That's also so, so key. It's, it's really getting a real understanding uh, and a real sense of the distance. Because often really that's, I think, the main hurdle that, that we face in terms of transgressing is, is not really realizing, you know, the damage that we've actually caused so I had an interesting question. There are these two basic fundamental concepts in Judaism that really, you know, start everything. One is the unity of God, that God has created everything from nothing, and that God really controls all. I mean, again, it, it leads one thing flows from the next. Since everything is created from nothingness at every moment, and everything is based on God's influence, well, then nothing's beyond his purview, and then everything is within his control. And providence, everything's following along, you know, within God's, the sequence or the plan that God sees for it. All come, it's all part of the unity of God. Then there's this other concept of the majesty of man. That's another concept. That man is created in the image of God. So which one is the which one is the pillar? Which one is the actual pillar? Or is it both? Is it the two tablets? So I was searching, I was uh, th thinking about the Siddur to see if I could figure out if the Siddur gives us any hints to which comes first. Um, so so I look at uh, the first prayer of the day. So in the first prayer, we say that I thank you, O King. So there's an interesting thing there that we start with Ani. So the first thing that we mention is the person. But Lafanecha, and I'm before you. Another allusion to a person being in the image of God, because I am thanking before you. A person stands before God. In other words, we're not just, you know, God is up there somewhere, but we're just animals on two legs walking around. No, the person is always face-to-face -face with God. As soon as you wake up in the morning, you're not even clean yet. You're already lafanecha. You're already speaking face-to-face. -face. That's a very profound concept. That's something that really needs to go very, very deep inside a person. <clears throat> Here's another one. Obviously, this very, very important prayer, a biblical commandment for all uh, male Jews, to say the Shema Yisrael every day. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So this is the paradigm of the unity of God. This is the verse in which Israel proclaims God's unity in the world. That um, Hashem, the four-letter name is 
the God of Israel, the God who involves himself in the world, but he's also one. He's also this unity that bring, that creates everything ex nihilo, from uh, something from nothing. But how do we begin that statement? Shema Yisrael. Hear Israel. What is Israel? Israel is really the, the name of the Jewish people that is, represents Israel in its most lofty level. It represents Israel that overcomes other forces. Yisrael. It's, Sar is a, is a, uh, a minister, correct? Uh, a, a kingly minister, a governor. Ale, over powers, over other powers, over angels, whoever it may be, but the other, the other um, illusory powers that, that appear to be, um, you know, outside of God in the world. Now Israel overcomes all those things. So this is the most lofty level. So, in other words, it appears, and you can, you can argue with me on this, but it appears that we begin with the fact that man was created in the image of God. That's how person must begin. Person must begin with that every single day. Maybe that's because that's because we're human and, and really I mean we're we're we need to understand ourselves before we can really move forward with life. Just like a child, you know, young people need to find themselves, understand themselves before we can move on and do more and do for others, including God. <clears throat> but there's also something deeper in regards to repentance. We were talking about remorse. We were talking about, you know, change. And the truth is that life is a very, very serious business. There's a lot of potential suffering. There's a lot of dangers. It's, as they say, it's fraught with danger. It's fraught with responsibility. And to face all that, we have to start with that foundation. You must know that we are in the image of God. That's, how, that's our starting point. And really, it's from that lofty starting point that brings to remorse. It's that point. It's realizing that we are in the image of God. The more we really internalize how lofty we really are inside, the more disgusted we should be with acts that violate God's will. The act that violates God's will, as as Hasidic thought explains it and Kabbalistic thought explains it, brings all types of spiritual contaminants on a person. It, it, it corrupts, you know, and, dirt and filthies the soul and really the image of the human being. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. And it is, again, really the quintessential example. Man... It says that man was created, our sages say he was created circumcised. It says after the sin, he was no longer circumcised. The idea of this is that, you know, the body is a reflection of the soul. Okay? So man's body became more coarse, it became more susceptible to lust and so on. But the point is, is that in Jewish thought and Talmudic thought, the man circumcised is in, in his completion. Uncircumcised, he's not. So that means that the very form of man was distorted. 
That means after the sin, he, his form was no longer the same. His form was more similar to the form of an animal. So that's, an, that's a very, very horrible and painful realization. I mean, the effect of the sin was extremely deep to his very, very being, his very body, which reflected also, you know, the um, design, you could say, of his soul also. Because we know, again, in Hasidic thinking, that everything in the physical world reflects the, the spiritual realities. So if the body of man changed, that means his spiritual makeup did as well. So that means his starting point is not the same starting point anymore. But in any event, we should look at ourselves and realize that what is our source? What does the Torah begin with? It starts with the story of Genesis. It starts telling us that the world was created perfect. Hashem said about everything in the world that it was good. Even, our sages say, even evil inclination was called good. Called very good. And then what happened? Then God entrusts man with responsibility, and he fails, and he has to leave. And he leaves the garden, and, it's, and, and part of the curse, really the punishment of Adam, is that the world changes. The world itself isn't the same world anymore. It's covered with, with thorns. So you see that man's action even affected the entire world. So you see this dichotomy. You see that we show, the first thing we have to know is potential. The world was created good. Man was created good. Man was created in the divine image. We can get back there. It's in our, it's in our hands because we're the ones who messed it up. We can get back there. So these are the two ideas we always have to have in mind. It's all right there in the Genesis story. We are created in God's image. That means we can create. We can change. Hashem's power flows through us. But on the other hand, we can destroy. And, 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 and we have to correct. Because this is already a reality. Adam did change the world. He made terrible mistakes. And we have to take responsibility. We have to realize that the world is our responsibility. As the sages uh, tell us, that um, God told Adam, he said, he see all this beautiful world? He said, take care not to destroy it with your actions. So it's on our hands, and we have to really know that. But how can a person take upon themselves that heavy responsibility? How can a person do that? Can a person who's depressed take on that level of challenge? No, they can't. Can a person face their faults without knowing they're created in the divine image? But once you have that power in you, you can face any bitter pill. Because you know at the end of the day who you really are. And it's only a question of getting there. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that, that we have that deep inside. And we have to face facts. We have to face evil in the face our own, what we're doing wrong. We have to be honest about it. And there's nothing to be afraid of because we can, we can beat it, we can change. And in, and in essence, our essence is truly, truly good. And we should be happy with that. 
It's only the person who doesn't believe in a divine image, and they're looking to, you know, prove through success they're somebody, prove by how big their car is, prove by uh, their job. A person's very essence is where their self-worth should come from. And it's a fascinating thing that throughout the Jewish prayers, talks about the greatness of God in the Mahzor for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and there isn't that much about man. But again, but that's because we understand that the greater God is, the greater we are. Because we're in His image, and He created us, and He gave us with the mission. He gave us a mission. The more we understand how great God is, the more we really understand how great our potential is, how great we are essentially. And even the entire world, even all of creation. If something just came about, you know, by chance, and it's just here, I can have a personal subjective opinion and say, I think it's beautiful, I, th I think it's worthwhile, but it doesn't have any real meaning to it. Someone else can disagree, and it just happened by chance in Monte Carlo. But if the infinite beautitude willed it and wants it to exist, that's a very different story then. That's a very different story. And if we know that everything that we have, everything that exists, is here on purpose for mankind and for a reason, that gives deep, deep value to anything. Then we can face things then we can face reality. Because even though reality looks dark, and there's cruelty, and there's tragedy, and not only that, not only is there cruelty, and there's tragedies, and suffering, but we know it's really, at the end of the day, it's our fault. And that's a bitter pill to swallow. It's a very bitter pill. But we can handle it, because we are created in the divine image. And the divine image is infinite. It has, you cannot put a value on it. When you connect with that, nothing can get you down. So, <clears throat> so that was a debate I was having, and, and I believe that in order to come to full tshuva, a person has to first understand what it means to be a human being. The deeper a person understands what that means, the deeper they can have remorse over what they've done wrong. And just like, I mean, for example, um, the son of a king or a prince, his actions and the way he, he looks at his own actions is much different than the way a peasant does. Obviously, the uh, a king's son or a prince um, is going to examine his actions and he's going to be held up to a different standard than he himself is going to be embarrassed if he acts in a way which is not appropriate. So, really, the higher that we realize we are, at the same time, the humbler we also are, because we realize that we're not, we haven't reached the place that we really should be. And we realize that we've made many mistakes. We also realize how close we could be to God, how close we could be to Hashem, and yet we're not there. It's all about understanding potential. Because, you know, generally we walk around feeling, I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good, 
life's good, life's, God's pretty good to me, I have a good job, wife, kids, everything fine. But again, when you're starting from this concept that a human being is created in the image of God, and what we really mean by that in a practical level, is as Maimonides says, is that a human being is in a constant relationship with God. There's an awareness of God in his life. And when we realize we don't have that, and we feel very far from that, and we want to reach that, that really is the beginning of the blooming of real tshuva, of real repentance, meaning return. Returning to God. Pashavta ad Hashem elokecha. To get back to Hashem. <clears throat> I wanted to bring a, a couple of uh, examples of tshuva. Um, the first, uh, the first being really is Adam. But did Adam do a full repentance? Our sages say that Adam repented, but evidently he did not do a full repentance. If he did a full repentance then you would, the assumption would be that everything would have been rectified. Evidently, he didn't do a full repentance. <clears throat> I like to argue that there was a level or element of remorse that may have been missing from Adam Arishon, from, from Adam's repentance. And I'll tell you why I say that. We have no evidence that Adam did another sin again. The, the Torah doesn't tell us about any other sins. So you can't claim that he, you know, uh, in the future continued to do what he previously did, that, he pre that his previous transgression. His confession, well, um, we don't see that clearly. The truth is that his confession was certainly lacking, um, as we see in the Torah initially. But if we're seeing someone repents, I mean, uh, you know, confession is the easiest part. You just have, you're verbalizing. I mean, that to say that Adam didn't even bother verbalizing, that really doesn't make any sense. So it can't be that either. So we're left with remorse. So we're left with saying that Adam didn't come to the full level of remorse that he could have. I also believe the reason we know that Adam lacked remorse was because it is remorse that is the power that not only changes the future, it changes the past. Yes, how is that possible? That is the incredible miracle of tshuva. It not only changes the future, it changes the past. As our sages say, if someone does tshuva out of fear then the sins he, done, he did become sins that were done inadvertently. A person repents and does tshuva out of love, then the transgressions that he, he did become merits. That means we're changing the past. How is that possible? How does someone change the past? Well, obviously in spiritual matters, there's no question. I mean, we can change, we can change the past. If you move the different circuits around, evidently you can change the past. But in a more practical level, the way we're changing the past is we're changing the effect that the past had on the person. 
we're taking away the effects that the past had. I mean, in a certain sense, the past is over. The past no longer exists. In what way does the past exist now? It exists in whatever effect it leaves on the person. So in other words, as long as a person is carrying that past within them, because they still have those qualities, they still have the blemish inside of them from that sin. For example, a person committed a certain transgression and therefore you know, got into the habit of doing that transgression. They normalize it in their mind to whatever extent that transgression made God less real to them because that's the effect of a sin. They're more distant. They don't have the same spiritual sense that they do before the commission of a sin. So in all those ways, the, the past it still goes on right now. It still exists within the soul of the person, within the person's being. Remorse un, is a force that can undo all that. It removes all of that. It, it burns out all the, the, the dross that made this normalized sin, that distanced the person from God, um, that made the sin one with the person because the pleasure derived from the sin incorporates those energies into the person, into their soul and through remorse, through the pain, through the, 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 the contriteness the person cleanses all of those elements that it's no longer part of their being so in that way they've changed the past because although the past happened, but its effects are gone. And that's the main point. And you can even say that you also change the, the meaning of the past. Because through the remorse, the person comes even closer to God. And therefore, what initially was an obstacle has now turned into a springboard. And that way, the whole definition of the past has changed. It's no longer what it initially seemed like it was. Before, it appeared to be something that, that was uh, basically the kiss of death. And now, it's ended up to be the, the, the gates to heaven, the same exact act. person changed it. The person, by his just perception, his own approach to his own history, changed, changed his entire being and his future. So this seems to be what was missing with Adam, because if he really did have sufficient remorse enough he should have been able to bring himself back to the level that he was before the sin. That's what I would assume. It could be argued that it was there is a certain decree sometimes from heaven, and that there's certain things that we cannot fix, certainly not in our own generation. Sometimes it may take more than one generation or, or one, um, how shall I say, soul quest in order to fix something. That's another possible uh, argument. But I think let's take, it, let's take things very practical. Every person should have the ability to completely wipe out a sin. Why was Adam any different than any one of us? The assumption should be that he could have rectified. Because he was the one who did wrong. He should have had the ability to correct it. So his, his tshuva had to have been in some way deficient.